Father in heaven, I thank you that these dear people have come here because they have an interest in being used of you for the betterment of other people's lives. And we just submit uh, this class to you. We ask for your wisdom, your leading, your guiding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, just so you know, I want to be clear. The name of this is Poverty Cure. Now, this is not to, to enrich you for coming here. So, uh, you, if that's what you had in mind, <laughs> you walked four miles to get here. Uh, there's no... Uh, no, there's no free lunches here or anything like that. But uh, um, Poverty Cure, I'm really uh, very excited about this seminar. Uh, I've been uh, interested in this topic for a long time, ever since I went to Romania like 25 years ago. But um, the whole thing really reignited in my mind about, I don't know, a year and a half ago when I went to the Philippines. And uh, I've done a lot of study since then. I guess there's two things that you should know about that. Number one, I really don't know what I'm talking about. It probably disappoints you. Uh, <laughs> but that's not the big problem. The big problem is sometimes I forget and I think I know what I'm talking about. So uh, if that happens, you'll be gracious to me, okay? Uh, that being said, in all seriousness, I have had the privilege to do a lot of study, and there's so much, it's just like the Bible, I guess. The more you study, the more you realize there's more to learn. Um, I do want to say that um, some of what I say in this seminar will definitely cut across uh, current practice and like that. You may disagree with what I say, that's great. Really, it's a discussion. Uh, as long as we're not, you don't throw tomatoes at me or something like that, okay? Uh, so I'm going to just start here with a story, as I intend to do most of these uh, sessions here. This, uh, this is, you know, not the best, these first several slides. The other ones are going to be clearer for you. So this is a little girl named Alina. Uh, Alina, I met her in an orphanage in Romania, as I mentioned, 25 years ago. Uh, she, she's, she was basically, as a baby, was abandoned by her mother into an orphanage in Bucharest, where she stayed until she was, oh, about eight years old, something like this. And then her grandmother found her and took her into her home and, and uh, kept her for several years until it was found out that she was uh, HIV, Alina, at which point her grandmother abandoned her. Uh, she was about 12 at that time, or maybe 10 at that time. And uh, so she was in another orphanage in a city called Folkshan in Romania, and that's where I met her. And she was... Uh, uh, one of the most incredible human beings, really, I ever met. Um, this was really 
you know, we all kind of live in a bubble, right? I mean, uh, when I first met this girl and we spent some time with her, I mean, I mean, there was 150 orphanages, orphans there, but she was among the more intelligent. She spoke English. Well, you know, I remember her speaking English. Probably I had an interpreter, but she was certainly an intelligent girl. And uh, I mean, I just went home and I, I just, I mean, I just cried for a long, long time in the apartment there where I was staying in the pastor's apartment. And uh, she, to be frank, and I suspected that then, and I, I think she was kind of the fundraiser for the orphanage because she was such an incredible young lady. And, uh, and I, think that, I think they showcased her a little bit. She was one of the first ones they introduced me to, a rich American. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so the last time I saw Alina was in the hospital, and uh, the next time I came to Romania, uh, the doctor who I'd become good friends with told me that she was gone. She told me she told me was that she'd been adopted by some wealthy people in England, and. I don't know if I ever believe that story. I, I tend to believe she had died, but that's what she told me. Maybe she was trying to be save me from bad, you know, hurt feelings or whatever. I don't know. But what I do know is that she was such an incredible. I mean, this girl was so positive, and we had we had interpreted. Uh, I mean, we had gotten her a Romanian Bible that she could read, and so on and so forth. And uh, she never heard the name of Jesus until we had met her there even though it is an orthodox country. But uh, she was such an incredible girl that in her absence, when she was no longer there, and this is in like, this is like two years after the dictator fell. And I mean, it took a long time just to get, you know, uh, permission to cross the street. I mean, the, the government was not exactly computerized <laughs> at that time. And... Uh, but somehow through all the bureaucracy, this girl was such an incredible, positive, beautiful, young uh, AIDS girl that they actually named that orphanage after her. And through the bureaucracy and everything, actually got new signs. And, uh, and so Alina made a very deep impression on, on my heart. And uh, so we'll dedicate this this session to Alina, okay? Now, um, my theme today is, is called a mind for the poor. In other words, we all here, I, I think, uh, came here because we have a concern uh, for, and I mean poverty, stronger word than poor, but uh, um, the basic theme today is, is it takes more than a heart that feels for them. We must use our mind. Okay. We'll talk a little bit about unintended consequences. And I should say that um, although the principles that I share here will apply anywhere and everywhere, um, I think the first two sessions or so, maybe, uh, anyway, is a more of an international emphasis, although everything applies locally, and as we go further in, there'll be more uh, local, 
Okay? So here's where we start and where everything starts, the book of Genesis. And, uh, and this, is, this is central. This is not, I'm not sharing this because it's, it's um, you know, a, a clever thing to do or I feel obligated to do it. This is a central theme that runs through all five of our sessions, and that is that every human being is created in the image of God. Okay. And we'll see some practical applications to that today and, and as we go on through this seminar. Created in the image of God. And that, by the way, just, just a little bit of context here. I think I have two slides to this effect. Uh, this is from a book called When Helping Hurts, which, by the way, I have a bibliography, uh, and uh, I will hand that out uh, sometime here today. Um, anyway, nearly 3 billion people are living on less than $2 a day. And over a billion of them dwell in desperate poverty. So the author here doesn't seem to feel that less than $2 a day is desperate poverty. So you got 3 billion on less than $2 a day and a billion of them far worse off than that. And it goes on to say, they are starving in slums, sold into slavery, orphaned due to AIDS, dying of preventable diseases. Some of them have faith in Jesus. They are Christian brothers and sisters. Others of them have never even heard of Jesus. So they're without hope and without God in this world. Okay. And from the book Ministry of Healing, it said there that there are multitudes struggling with poverty, compelled to labor hard for small wages and able to secure but the barest necessities of life toil and deprivation with no hope of better things make their burden very heavy. Okay. And, and, I, and I think we're aware of this. But just a little context here in the beginning. And I, I, I am... I, uh, there's going to be a lot of information through this next five days. And if you're really, really interested in this topic, I, I, I think there will be helpful information. It's, it's an introduction. It's a, trying to help you understand what's going on in the poverty uh, alleviation world. And then, of course, the principles that apply to each one of us as we uh, take our part as the Lord leads each one of us. She goes on to say, when pain and sickness are added, which, of course, so often is the case, the burden is almost insupportable careworn and oppressed, they know not where to turn for relief. Okay. So that is, hi there, poverty. So uh, just to those of you who came in uh, a little bit late, uh, I do have a handout that has each one of these slides. We didn't make quite enough, but I'll make sure you get them tomorrow so you don't have to frantically write if, if you're doing that, okay? I'm sorry you don't have them to take notes on, but every slide uh, I'll hand out uh, tomorrow. Most of you got it today. All right? So, 
Uh, Mark Twain, our, he said that all generalizations are false, including this one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he had a way with words. And it's, this is uh, it's true with us. The very first time I went to Romania and I saw the drab, dark, gray, you know, communist-style apartments there, and the garbage overflowing, and, and people in the garbage, and stuff like that. I looked at the whole thing from, you know, my own upbringing. And I, I remember that evening, uh, later that evening, I was at the pastor's apartment, and some of the young people from the church had come over to visit, and there was one young lady who was maybe one of the last ones there, and, and uh, she said she's going to go home now. It was about midnight. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, they're not going to, I mean, are you going by yourself? She was walking. Are, are you going by yourself? You know? And, well, yeah, yeah. You know, and to me, the poverty, there's something wrong? Or No, I'm sorry. Uh, we ran out of handouts. And, uh, I will make sure you get it tomorrow, if you come tomorrow, okay? Uh, yeah, you could call uh, Shelly, if you want to do that, John. Uh, here's her phone number here. Thank you. Yeah. That's her phone number. Oh, you don't have, you have, you have to take your hand out. Uh, having the slightest idea, she's in charge of all the setup for all these. I mean, she's located in the basement of the old gym, but her phone number is on that sheet. Do you have a phone? Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, I naturally assumed that because it was poor in that in that uh, environment, that there was a lot of crime outside. That was just my assumption because that that is a generalization that I that that's that's the way I saw things. Well, they explained to me she's going to be fine and dandy. She can walk home. Nobody's going to touch her. Nobody's going to bother her. I'm like, wow, you know. So uh, we have our own thoughts about poverty, what it is. We're going to spend just a teeny bit of time here uh, defining poverty. Uh, actually, what it is, is the World Bank, uh, not too long ago, they decided that they were going to listen to the voices of the poor, as they themselves described uh, abject poverty, and they uh, put it in a book, and I have just a few samples here. First one from Moldova in Eastern Europe. These are the, the people themselves speaking. For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. So I'm going to have about eight of these statements here, and I think you're going to notice that nobody mentions their level of income. They're talking about shame, voicelessness, um, these types of things. 
So it's important for us to understand because if our mind is that poverty is a lack of things, then we're going to make serious mistakes trying to help people because we're going to give them things. And that's, in many cases, is not going to be appropriate. Okay. Because it's a hope. That's why. Create an image of God. Yes, physically. They need things, food, roof over their head, and so on. But there's so much more to that. And if, well, as in this case, when I don't have any food to bring my family, I borrow mainly from neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing you find her? Okay. When I have nothing to help feed the family, I am not well when I'm unemployed. It's terrible. So we see this word shame popping up again. Okay. Uh, uh, one veteran, 40 years of inner city ministry, uh, wrote how that you know, the, and I'm not saying, I'm not making, by the way, I'm not making any rules or laws here in this seminar, okay? I may use certain examples. Everybody has to, you know, every situation is different. So please understand, I'm going to lay out principles, and I'm not saying that what you did is wrong, or you know, I may say what I did wrong, and, you know, it has been wrong, but in this case, he just shared how that, you know, at Christmas time, uh, they used to take gifts to these various, uh, you know, the kids and these various families. And uh, after a while, he noticed that, you know, the father was never around. And, of course, also had generalizations about that. But after a while, he realized, that at least in some cases, that the father wasn't around because he felt shame at this time. That these, excuse me for saying this, that these white people had to come in and provide gifts for his kids at Christmas time. So the, the kids were happy, but it was not a good experience for that father. It might have been very much better to have met with that father and provided those gifts for that father, assuming he's not on drugs and this, that, and the other thing. You know, I mean, this is a big picture. And let him provide for his kids. So that's what we're talking about. A mind for the poor, Okay. Latvia, during the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house, and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low self-esteem. Again, you see the whole person. In fact, we haven't yet heard anyone say anything about you know, what my income is, what my bills are. They're talking about their, their being. Uganda, when one is poor, she has no say. In public, she feels inferior. She has no food, so there is famine in her house. No clothing and no progress in her family. So we can just hear the, the sense of powerlessness, the sense of um, hopelessness. Cameroon, the poor have a feeling of powerlessness and an inability to make themselves heard. I experienced this uh, to some extent. This is, again, uh, more than 20 years ago. My wonderful wife, Joanne, and I, we made the uh, decision to... Uh, there was a young lady. She was, I think, 
well, she's around 11 when I first met her in Romania. She lived in one of the poorest areas of Romania, one of the poorest villages in that area, and they were the poorest house, you know, in that village, mainly because the father had a serious drinking problem. But, uh, and, but she was a smart girl. And in that particular village, the, I mean, as long as I went there, which was over a period of years, the windows were broken in that school. They, were, they never got fixed. And the teachers had uh, a high school education. This was an elementary school, you know, grades one through eight. And in Romania at that time, it's been a number of years since I've been there, but at that time, uh, at the end of the eighth grade, you took a test. And if you didn't do well enough on the test, you didn't go to high school, which meant that you were going to be a peasant, which is what most of these kids in this village were. I mean, they were dependent upon growing their own food. They had no outside job. Well, uh, this girl, uh, we decided to provide her a, uh, there was a college girl, a very nice college girl. These, both of these girls were Seventh-day Adventist backgrounds. And so the college girl wanted to go to college. And this, so we decided to team these two girls up and put them in an apartment in the city so that our girl could at least do uh, eighth grade and maybe prepare for the test so she could go to high school. Well, uh, it worked out. She did well on her test, but in the meantime, we decided that we were going to bring her to the West so she could have uh, other advantages and a better education and so on. And so, I don't know, I think, and so in the hot summer sun, uh, we found ourselves, we, we knew we couldn't get her to the United States, so we decided we, we had a specific school in mind and uh, in Canada, which had a very good reputation. And uh, so we decided to try to get her there. And, and our plan was from there, it'd be fairly easy to get her into the United States. Anyway, uh, you know, we'd go to the, to the embassy, the Canadian embassy. There out front would be, I mean, the, the windows would be barred. Uh, it was soldiers, you know, standing in front. And you'd stand in line. You'd have to get there at 5 in the morning if you wanted to be, you know, expect to see anyone. And we'd go there, we'd present our papers, and it, this wasn't a Canadian we were seeing, this is a Romanian person we'd see at this window. And she would say, oh, well, uh, you need to bring such and such a paper. Well, that, okay. And so we would go, we'd go into the city, and everything had to be interpreted, and then, you know, by a certified interpreter and so on. And, and, and so then we'd, we might not make it that, we probably wouldn't make it that day. So we'd have to go back, you know, two and a half hours, and we'd come back, we'd have our act together. We'd come back, we'd present our papers, exactly what they said we needed, and she'd say, oh, well, uh, you know, why didn't you bring this? You need this. Well, this went on like seven times, literally. And I can remember standing there in the hot sun on the sidewalk, there's these soldiers, you know, we had to get in this building. This meant, you know, life for this girl. And, uh, you know, I felt to some small degree that sense of just being barred out, no, you know, just eliminated from opportunity. <laughs> and, uh, yes, sir? I experienced this when somebody told all these barricades. Barricades, yes. At you, they want money on the, the table. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I had a policy in Romania. I didn't give, uh, I didn't give uh, well, maybe once or twice. It was really important. But generally, I, I, that was my policy. I didn't, even to the policeman. But anyway, uh, 
By the way, just, just there finally came one morning. We, we woke up again two, two and a half hours north of Bucharest. And when the, we woke up early, and as we were getting ready to go, it was becoming light, and there was a rainbow. And I told uh, Manuela and the, the group that was traveling with us that today's a day, you know. And, uh, and it was. We, she got her visa that day, graduated from uh, Andrews University. I mean, she went to uh, Academy and uh, graduated from Andrews University. So. In fact, uh, just within the last few months, she got her uh, green card. So she's been here uh, ever since. She ended up getting a master's degree. All right, so powerlessness, okay? So we're looking at every person's made in the image of God, and we have to look at the whole person. We, we can't just, here's a pile of money. In fact, most of you know we don't generally give money, period, at least not in the United States here. So... Your hunger is never satisfied. Your thirst is never quenched. You're, you can never sleep until you are no longer tired. I like that. That person could be a good writer. You never sleep until you're no longer tired. In other words, you don't sleep in. It's kind of like camp pitch for the pastors. <laughs> okay. Uh, we go to 1045. Is that your understanding? or Okay, good. All right. Vietnam. If you are hungry, you will always be hungry. If you are poor, you will always be poor. It's, it's total hopelessness here. doesn't have to be true. It's, that's her experience. These are the voices of the poor. Absolutely. And uh, probably what she observed her whole life, it was true from her observations. Ecuador, what determines poverty or well-being? That's the question they were asking. The indigenous people's destiny is to be poor. Again, there's no hope there. And uh, I think this is the last one. China, what one shouldn't lack is the sheep, but one cannot live without is food. Okay. So, it's one thing to be hungry. It's not a good thing. But there's a whole lot more than hunger that goes with it. Depression, hopelessness, and so on. Okay. The whole person. Now, let's see what I have next here. Oh, yes, to remind ourselves where we're at here. Uh, these, you know, every human being is created in the image of God. Um, by nature, by creation, they have hopes, they have desires, right? They don't have opportunity in so many cases, or they have very little opportunity, very difficult opportunity, okay? And, uh, We'll be referring back to Genesis uh, quite a few times. There's so much there that relates to poverty and proper principles, as I understand them, uh, of trying to help uh, the poor. Okay? Here we go from the wonderful book, Ministry of Healing. Notice this. If my, my understanding, my memory tells me that this book was published in 1905. Okay? Here it says, 
So we're talking about a mind for the poor. Here it says, true beneficence means more than mere gifts. It means a genuine interest in the welfare of others. And here's the sentence. We should seek to understand the needs of the poor and distressed and to give them the help that will benefit them most. Notice here, there's a almost a you know, there's a, certainly a downgrading of gifts here. She's not condemning that, but she's not holding, this paragraph doesn't hold gifts very high. Mere gifts, she calls it. No, we should seek to understand the needs. She may have meant the true needs, the true situation of the poor and distressed and to give them the help that will benefit them most. It's the implication, if I'm not reading into it, is that mere gifts is certainly not on a long-term basis what, what is needed. Okay. And here she says, to give thought and time and personal effort costs far more than merely to give money, but it is the truest charity. So to give thought... All right. Notice Robert Lupton, who I uh, mentioned earlier, who spent 40 years working in Atlanta in the uh, urban poverty work there. Notice what he wrote just within the last few years in his book, Charity Detox. Uh, it sounds so much what, like what was written in 1905. It's amazing. He wrote that charity that frees the poor from poverty requires a more thoughtful approach, one that is admittedly much more complex and time-consuming, and one that requires far more personal involvement in the lives of those we serve. Okay? The same themes uh, by this highly regarded uh, worker and author, um, Robert Lupton. So, Michael Fairbanks, who is spending his life in helping uh, the poor around uh, internationally in his book, In the River They Swim, which is not in my bibliography, didn't quite make it, but it is uh, worth reading. He, he wrote, having a heart for the poor is easy. Having a mind for the poor is the challenge. Okay, Yeah. And uh, so... That's what we're talking about. Now, that brings us to this. When disaster relief brings anything but relief, okay? Just uh, within the last month or so, and I uh, looked for that this morning. I thought I had printed it out, but I didn't find it in my pile of papers I printed out. Anyway, on the ABC uh, website, uh, there was a story there about, well, this I think was the, was the uh, title, when disaster relief brings anything but relief. And they had some stories there. Uh, for example, in Honduras, uh, it's been quite a few years ago now. What was it? I'm trying to remember. It was a hurricane, I think. Anyway, they had a major disaster there. And the lady that was interviewed uh, you know, was very responsible in, in, in bringing relief. And, and she told the story how the, the uh, pilot of a plane that was bringing in medicine and Things that they desperately needed said he couldn't he couldn't land on the uh, runway, 
because uh, somebody had left bales of, uh, well, just that, boxes and bales were covering the runway. So this lady called, you know, her people who were at the airport waiting to meet this plane, and what is this on the runway? You know, who put it there? She says, I don't know. She said, but I can see some of the bales, uh, or at least one of the bales, I think she said, uh, has winter coats in it. Okay, you get that? This was summertime in Honduras. And some caring person sent all these bales and boxes, some of which at least contain winter coats, which, you know, were totally unneeded and literally kept the plane that had the true relief from landing. Yeah. So, and the same article talked about more recently in Haiti uh, how that... Um, some very kind-hearted uh, American women. <coughs> well, we would like to donate breast milk to the Haitians. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, there's, you know, absolutely, I mean, <laughs> there was no refrigeration. There was, you know. So anyway, uh, a mind. And so I'm going to show at this time a, uh, let's see, I'm going to show a, a video clip. I, uh, I, I don't know, I might stop it. If I don't stop it, somewhere in the middle, uh, I think at the very longest it can be about 20 minutes, okay? And it's, the theme here again is uh, a mind for the poor, and really it's about unintended consequences, okay? <laughs> In the last few decades, we've seen increased awareness of extreme poverty. Celebrity campaigns like Live Aid, Make Poverty History and the One campaign have made great strides to raise awareness and get people involved in helping the poor. We've seen the growth of social entrepreneurship, nonprofits, and NGOs. We've sent trillions of dollars to the developing world and thousands of people have volunteered and dedicated their lives to working with the poor. Some of these things have done a lot of good. Unfortunately, Others haven't had the positive effect that we're hoping for. This brings us to another core focus of this series. How do we connect our good intentions and desire to help with things that actually work? The rock star Bob Geldof, who's worked with Bono and other celebrities to increase awareness about extreme poverty, once said, we need to do something even if it doesn't work. Now, Geldof's commitment and his advocacy for the poor but notice that his remark overlooks a possibility. The something that we do may actually cause harm. Our good intentions may have unintended consequences. I had my eyes open to this through a friendship with Jean. And Jean was a friend in Rwanda. And he told me the story that after the Rwandan genocide, that he had a church from Atlanta that started sending over eggs and ended up just distributing eggs in his small community outside of Kigali. And this seems like a great thing to do, right? The church wanted to help after the genocide. But Jono, a few years before, had started a small egg business himself. He put this investment in all the materials that he needed to start this egg business. His business was starting to grow, it was starting to take off, and then all of a sudden, in one summer, there become this surplus of eggs that were flooding the market in his area. 
And so this desire that the church had to really take care of a need, it did take care of a need. But the problem is that it put John out of business. He ended up selling his hens. And then the next year, the church decided to focus its attention to somewhere else in the world. John was out of business. No one else was there providing eggs. And so they had to bring the eggs in from another community. So this desire to help in that community, uh, according to Jono, actually had a long-term negative impact on that community. When I was growing up, we didn't have second-hand clothing from Europe and the US and Canada in Kenya. My mother took me to a store and she bought me a beautiful t-shirt that said made in Kenya, Kenya cotton. Today, I would struggle to find a t-shirt like that for my daughter. Why? Because the influx of secondhand clothing that makes its way here from Europe and the US and Canada has negatively impacted on our textile industry in Kenya. Massive layoffs in the 80s and the 90s. Factories that shut down. What happened to our cotton farms? When I was growing up in this country, we could have bought cotton in varieties and types that are incomparable. But that's all gone because of the impact, the negative impact of the apparel imports at a second-hand level. I recall very well when I first heard the news reports of the Haitian earthquake. The Republic of Haiti has been hit by a massive earthquake. Entire neighborhoods of Haiti's capital city of Port-au-Prince have been leveled, and the country has declared a state of emergency. As I was getting ready for the day, my first emotion was, I need to get on a plane and go there and help. And I suppose that's an admirable response to human tragedy, but as the day wore on and I thought about it and heard more reports, I thought how unpractical I would be in the way. I think that's a moral instinct that human beings share with other human beings. It is the recognition of ourselves in the other. What would I want someone to do for me if I was in this situation? But we need to take that emotion and mature it. We need to take that impulse and systematize it so that what we actually do, what we really bring to the table isn't just a feeling, isn't just a sentiment, but is an action on behalf of those who are really in need. And that takes some thought more than emotion. The important thing to remember is that compassion is not simply vehement expression of a point of view and that uh, the compassionate person has to consider the, the practical effects of what he is proposing. The issue of giving is a very difficult tension. We have been entrusted with a lot and we want to be generous with that. In fact, scripture tells us that we need to be generous. But when our generosity gets in the way of others becoming generous, when our stewardship gets in the way of others becoming good stewards, therein lies the problem. Christians have a natural commitment to fighting poverty. That comes from the foundation of Christian beliefs. But that 
Motivation must be allied with being smart. Um, the world is complicated. And so the actions we take, we must be confident that they're going to help and not make things worse. I witnessed the unintended consequences of charity when I visited with Ntima Samoa, a Ghanaian entrepreneur whose company manufactures medical equipment for local hospitals. Ntima and his 15 employees are meeting local needs, generating profits, and using much of their income in the local economy. It's how economies develop. But Ntima faces an unlikely adversary, charity in the form of free medical supplies. They show up in the country at unexpected times, meaning that every so often he has to compete against free goods, usually without warning. You see, when they come in like that, you know, hospital, hospital products, it doesn't, it doesn't spoil with uh, quickly. Uh, so when they bring in a lot, it will take time before they buy our own. And so it's, it's a very big challenge. It's a very big challenge. It, it, it hurts my business. It hurts my business a lot. When we learn about the unintended consequences of charity, it can be easy to get discouraged. And when we realize how vast and urgent the problem is, a natural reaction is to look to well-funded initiatives of governments and international organizations like the United Nations or the World Bank. One of the dominant ideas in the last century was that if we could just marshal vast sums of money through government-to-government -government foreign aid, we could jumpstart economies and begin the process of development. In the last 60 years, over $2 trillion has been spent on foreign aid. Yet the results have been less than hoped for, and even done harm. And many in the developing world are beginning to question this model. When we come into a country and provide a whole load of aid, unfortunately, then that creates a real problem for local manufacturers and producers, and affects them in, in, in terms of their economics. And sometimes we live with the legacy of these, you know, unintended consequences. Aid has delayed the development of, uh, of business in Africa, modern business. It has kept Africa behind. Aid has been the predominant model over the past 60 years, and data is increasingly pointing to another direction. It is showing us that foreign aid is not the solution. You need to know we are no longer getting excited by aid from uh, IMF from the World Bank, they perpetuate your misery by giving you a loan, make you a slave, economic slave, and you also end up paying the raw materials because you are chained by the loan. That's what we do to Africa. We subsidize our agriculture, we overproduce, then we ship it as aid with a handshake, and we, we disempower the African farmer. United Nations, the World Bank, and the IMF, they keep doing the same things over and over and over and over again. It's the same old aid boondoggle. Whenever you have an aid agreement, those consultants come into the country, and they don't work for the country, they work for the foreign aid establishment. And so what you find is that the aid establishment severs the sovereign link between the leader of a country and his people. Every time you do aid to Africa, you create that parental relationship. I'm helping you. You should be guided by me because I have a bag of money. 
The responsibility for your future is actually on me, not on you, because I have the resources to develop you. It's patron-client, it's master-slave, it's donor-recipient, it's all broken. I have never heard of a country that developed on aid. If, if you know of one, just let me know. I know about countries that developed on trade and innovation and business. I don't know of any country that got so much aid and they suddenly became a first world country. I've never heard of such a country. So the, the track is wrong. That track ends to nowhere. Herman Chinere Hesse is a classic entrepreneur. He's been called by some the Bill Gates of Africa. He's working on software and technology solutions to connect local entrepreneurs directly with customers and markets throughout the world. His business, like many others in the region, is creating jobs and putting Ghana on the road to prosperity. It's how Hong Kong, the Asian Tigers, and Ireland developed, and Hesse wants to see his native country do the same. I studied manufacturing in Texas State University, and I moved back to Ghana, and uh, I intended to go into manufacturing, and figured that I didn't have any money. I was sitting around and realized, hey, wait a minute, my little computer I had here was a, a factory. It could make software. And I'd been dabbling about with software. And I thought, hey, I could turn this into my manufacturing business. So I partnered up with an old, old uh, schoolmate and uh, we started writing software and uh, started selling door to door. In the early days, you know, hand to mouth, we bought a second computer and we employed one person. We, we were programming out of my bedroom, sitting on my bed. And then we evolved from there and grew and grew and grew over the years and became very large. He's met with great success by developing what he calls tropically tolerant software, programs that run well in places with frequent power outages. But the story he tells is like that of many entrepreneurs in the developing world. Sometimes international foreign aid has been an obstacle to growing his business. There are situations where I've set up a business deal, I'm about to do a trade. I'm to sell something to a community, I've made an investment, and NGOs will hear about it uh, because it becomes topical, and they find a way to bring aid money and provide it for free. So what happens to my investment? I have to lay off my staff. To a large extent, our governments uh, have been held captive by the donor agencies, the international donor community, who are not in my view, particularly interested in seeing the growth of uh, local business. When we talk to the government, the government says, hey, we're not allowed to buy with donor money local products. That's just the way it is. It's their money, they decide who gets it. And this has been a big dilemma for us. Politicians, they are more interested in a smile on the World Bank country director's uh, face than the success of my business. For example, five of us companies in Ghana got together, local companies, to bid for a contract, a government contract. Now, everything was going very well. We were competent to do the work. Guess what happens? We're bidding against some European companies. One of the companies got their government to loan our government money, a very soft loan, for the project. Our folks in the government said, hey, you know, we love you very much. <laughs> Nothing beats free money. We lost our money. You know what we ended up doing? We ended up working, working as subcontractors to the Europeans. They gave us the worst part of the business, the most difficult and least profitable part. We wound up doing it because we were, we were better at, at doing the work. So they got the best of both worlds. 
their government paid, we ended up doing the work, they took the money. That's not development, that's not assistance, that's thuggery. A large part of aid is, of course, a subsidy. All right, so um, the first two examples on there, the, the egg situation, what do you think of that? What's your thoughts on that? Sad. Okay. It was not using the mind. It was not using the mind. It was. How would they have found that out? But he's aware of the local needs, right? Mm. Right. Well, I noticed that whenever. Wait a minute, I got some hands first. <laughs> I gotta go. Yes. I've also been in situations where they've done anything where people would do short term mission trips. Yes. And they'll go in thinking this is great and they'll have this great evangelistic program and outreach for the kids. They bring lots of money, lots of things that they can give out to kids. And then when the local pastors try to put on a program and they don't have all this stuff, mm -hmm. people don't want to come yeah. because of what the short-term mission people did and mm -hmm. not really working with the local pastor and putting this together in a way that would really benefit the community, but they just brought in all their, all their stuff. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about short-term mission trips, maybe about the fourth day or something like that. Uh, you had your hand up? I, I haven't forgot you. Oh, he's, he's bowing to you. Oh, well, I do notice when, whenever there's a disaster that <laughs> the entire community, the news, churches, uh, gang together for food, clothing, and... Uh, the point where we have truckloads of it and we're shipping it. Mm. <laughs> it you know, we, we feel that's the right thing to do. Yeah, and it may very well be because, and again, I probably shouldn't have showed the, the so the the, uh, the chicken, I mean the eggs, and then the Kenyan uh, cloth. Um, those are things that might be a little closer to home, especially for us who might go on mission trips or like that. Okay, then the last clip was really about aid, which we're going to talk about more tomorrow. Um, but I'll just let me just say on what you said there, uh, we do have a, you know, we have uh, ADRA. What does that stand for? A-D-R-A. Okay, so we have development and we have relief, right? So when the hurricane hits, the earthquake hits, Absolutely, there is relief needed, and it's needed right now. Lives are at stake. Okay. But then there's development. And that is you know, the long term, which um, requires great thought, and so on. And th this lady here asked the question, well, how they have known about that? And that's, well, we'll talk about that here in a minute if we get that far. Okay, uh, I think I see her hand and then your hand. You all know the old saying, give a man a fish and a uh -huh. way, uh -huh. teach him how to fish. Yes. That's, I think, where we're headed. But as they said, they needed to use systemized, educated, mature thought in going the countries to help them. Right. It's called partnership. Yes. I think she was next. My husband and I were missionaries in Alhambra. Oh. Before we got there, um, it was either USAID or it was um, out of the 
using monies from the U.S. Mm -hmm. that had done a project on the hospital to, mm -hmm. to build a new part of the hospital where my husband was working. Um, Speak up just a little louder if you can. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and so the, a company, the, the aid organization, and I don't remember exactly if it was ADRA using sure, the money sure, sure. or just USAID, they had regulations that they had to pay the local people that did the jobs, quote, fair wages, which were way, way more than what okay. they could have earned there. I mean, you know, like 100 times okay. what they could have earned there. So there was a number of men in the community that worked on the project, but then the project was done. And then they didn't have a job anymore. But they were now too good they had earned too much to work for the local wages. So those people just basically wasted their lives. I mean, my <clears> husband <throat> came there and wanted to hire some to work on other projects. They wouldn't work for those wages that were the local wages that he would have had to pay because wow. we had the local uh, wage base for the hospital uh, on those basis. They didn't have all of that aid. <laughs> right. Okay. I don't want too much dead space here in this. <laughs> so there's a lot of unintended consequences, what you're saying. I will give them credit for one thing. They, they, at least they were hiring the local people. From what I have read, uh, of all the contracts, you're talking lots of money in Haiti after the earthquake, only 2% of the contracts by dollar has gone to Haitian people. So, uh, okay, just one more, and we got to move on. Um, I feel like, you know, often we think of money or, or stuff, which is great, but really, you know, we don't have to go overseas to find poor people. That's for sure. You know, you can find them within wherever you live in your community, and I feel like we were working with the inner city ministry where we lived. Where was that at? In Benton Harbor. Okay. It was really hard getting anybody to come and just develop relationships yeah. And I just feel like so much of it was, you know, honestly, they had a whole lot bigger TV screen than what I had. Their kids wore fancier tennis shoes than what my kids Okay. Had. Okay, so it comes down to what you're talking about. I didn't necessarily see it as a poverty from the standpoint of mm -hmm. finances. Mm -hmm. Some of it could have been, mm -hmm. but it was more the thought process yeah. than just, you know, and you really needed people to work with them and be with them and show them that they were an angel of God. Before they can really right. step out of that and think of themselves, because this is a generational problem sometimes. Oh, yeah. And so, so for me, it was really hard just to get people to come to invest time. Yes. And that's where I feel like, because I really feel I grew up poor, but I didn't even know I was poor. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, so, until somebody said, you're poor, and I'm like, I am. You know, so, 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 so we're, the, the, you know, I was raised in an Adventist environment sure. where I had. The, the mindset was very different. Right. Know, the education was very different. So for me, I had to be told that I was. I didn't even recognize it. So, so this is where I'm just saying for people, they need us to be involved in their lives. Right. I actually worked in Benton Harbor for 10 years myself. And uh, my comment on that is simply that uh, what I found and what others have found, actually I heard Skip uh, McCarty make this statement, and I've thought about it. Uh, many times since then, I guess, because it applies in certain other situations uh, where I'm at right now, actually. It finally takes about, you know, one one person 
can work about with about one family or maybe two. You know. Anyway, uh, I appreciate your comments. Uh, I hope what we've seen here has stirred up some thought. I don't. I want to kind of move on here. Try to actually. Well, I just try to tie some of these things together a little bit. Okay. Uh, I do want to have discussion. Uh, I, I think maybe tomorrow I might. I don't know. Pass this around or something. I'm kind of worried about somebody's going to be listening to this and they're going to hear nothing for a while. So we'll have to figure that out. But anyway, uh, uh, let's see. It should pick up where I left off. All right. So unintended consequences. That's what we we're just talking about. You noticed, uh, and just in the discussion here, has come out things that I haven't even thought of. Uh, there's lots of unintended consequences. So it's. We really begin on our knees. And um, I'll just leave that at that for now. Okay? So I want to spend just a teeny bit of time again. Uh, and I did have this up with the Voices of the Poor, but I did want to show those videos today, and I just wasn't sure where that would fall in the, in the time. So now I'm coming back to uh, the actually definition of poverty, okay? And this is a definition that this illustration is illustrating here that is certainly not original with me, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought it, it sort of, uh, yeah, it works, okay? And that is the thought that poverty is, is about broken relationships, okay? Broken relationship with God. Uh, you can see that uh, if we have another God in the place of the living God, whether it be alcohol or drugs, those are poverty examples, I mean material poverty examples, then those things lead to poverty. Uh, they tend to poverty. And of course, uh, our own relationship with ourself, we see that Adam and Eve, again, uh, once they disobeyed the Lord, it was a feeling of shame, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is very crippling uh, for, for people, very crippling for people. Um, la uh, you know, broken relationship with others. Here is a lot. We could talk a lot about this. Uh, and, you know, everything from the dictator uh, in whatever country it is that leads to, you know, that's, that's a fast track to poverty for the people, Right. That is a broken relationship with others. In this case, you know, the, the dictator or the leaders of the country in uh, so many other ways. Uh, and then, you know, civil war and so on. Uh, poverty is a, is a result of, we could say, uh, it's living in a broken relationship with others. And then creation, you know, the rest of the world, uh, certainly... Um, you know, uh, Laura used the, and this is a little bit beyond this, but not totally. Uh, so you use the, the uh, illustration. I actually have that tomorrow, but um, well, let's just say, well, let's just use this then. You know, when the earthquake hit in Haiti, which of course was already one of the poorest countries on earth, uh, it was devastating. So this is a, in a sense, a broken relationship with creation, sin, 
brought certain uh, results in this world that has led to poverty and, and terrible poverty around the world. Uh, by the way, in this, in this um, definition here, and I think it's a good time to say this, uh, we, if, if we can understand, to, to, and if you just think about this, uh, and I, I didn't buy this when I first read this, but the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, this really, this really has a lot of truth to it. Um, and it also makes room, because this is not talking about just material poverty. And we remember that Jesus said that we, you know, the Laodiceans, think that we're rich. And we don't know that we're poor okay, because of a broken relationship with God, even though we're very religious. Uh, so poverty, really, we are poor. Okay? We, we live in a broken world. We, most of us here are not, maybe all of us here, if we compare with the rest of the world, uh, we are not materially poor. But uh, we certainly have great needs, right? And the, the uh, a problem arises when we who are poor, okay, Jesus said so, we don't know it. We're trying to help people who are materially poor. Maybe we haven't really... Uh, got heart to heart with the Lord about this, maybe what we're really trying to do is feel good about ourselves. Okay. And of course, we already have a material view of poverty. And we want to be, you know, they use the term, uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, God syndrome or something like that. Well, I forget the phrase. We want to feel good about ourselves and we have this materialistic view of poverty, which certainly is partially true in a big way. And, and here's this person who's already feeling shame and so on. And so what do we do? We bring in a gift, you know, our, our money or whatever we're bringing. We feel good about ourselves. And we may do it in such a way that we're just deepening the shame that this person feels about themselves. Does that make sense to you? All right. Yes, sir. Some foreign countries. Some foreign countries. They, if you give them a job, low paying, you know, they feel shame. They feel shame. They don't want to work. Because they say that's a low, that's a shameful work. Another thing I found. I'm glad we don't have that in America. I'm glad Americans aren't that way. <laughs> Those, those foreign people are that way, but not Americans. Anyway, the, um, sometimes, uh -huh. any situation that involves money, yes. there's always a middleman. There's always a middleman. Okay. And I ran across that. They use, some people create an orphanage as a front to get foreigners to give money to. Okay. Yes, and sir. That's to enrich the own relatives, you know, free reign on how to use the money, but the kids got fucking nothing. So we have to be really careful, don't we? Yeah. We're going to talk about orphanage, I think, also on the fourth day here. 
Um, so I appreciate that. Do you want to say one more thing about that? Were you finished? Or? Uh, my experience is we went to Burma yes. three years ago. Yes. Uh, there was a little orphanage in 14, 15 years. An orphanage in Burma? Yeah. Yes. And that's an organization in Bering Spring. They call Reach International, I know them. Yeah. Yes. And they were supporting this with $3,000 a year. $3,000 a year. So they contacted me. And so I went there. Okay. I said, I'm willing to help. I have some funds that are given to me mm -hmm. to help situations like that. So I went there. Yeah, they did some good things. So we decided my daughter. All right, you got you gotta. I got only a few minutes left. Okay. So we went there to help. Yes. And my daughter is a very educated person, and said, "Hey, look, we want to help, but this is what we need to do. We got to have what you call two people controlling the money." Okay. So a lot of things. Yeah. Okay. So, but the management committee, the analytic committee, involving community, do they? Let that be the organization implement our association. And they did. Good. And the narratives didn't like it. They lost the control now. In the money pot. All right. A lot of your point in the beginning about time. Time is a huge thing because it does take a lot of time. Yes. New experience that Romania brought. Yes. My niece was gone to Yap to teach. Yes. Yes. And she's back to like in this room. Where was that at? You need yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you know what? It's hot it's hard to get and we'll talk about it. It's hard to get donors. Well what what are you guys doing? Well, we're getting to know the people. For two years? Yes. <laughs> we want action. Well, All right. Yeah. Okay. Wow, a lot of problems. All right, here we go. A little bit more here. I got seven minutes. Bryant Myers wrote basically a textbook uh, called Walking with the Poor. And in there, he takes this stab at defining uh, relationships, I mean, defining poverty. Uh, actually, he's putting into words the little uh, illustration I just showed you. Poverty is a result of relationships that do not work that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of peace in all its meaning. So again, poverty is a result of relationships that do not work. And that's a lot of reflection. I think uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Okay, so I'm going to just take a few minutes to talk about paternalism. Paternalism is behavior which limits some person or group's liberty or autonomy for what is presumed to be that person's or group's own good. Okay. Now, if you're talking about a five-year-old, that'd be okay, it'd be healthy, right? So, I'm going to just talk really quickly about three types of paternalism. Resource, spiritual, and knowledge, paternalism. 
Resource paternalism is a tendency to see solutions in material terms. Pouring financial and other material resources into situations where it is not appropriate. Handouts instead of investments, okay? Hi, you know, I remember the first time I went to Romania, uh, you know, I'd see these people and I'd give them money, you know? I never stopped to think that, number one, they're just normal in their, in their environment. They look poor to me, but I'm not even dealing with the poorest or the poor, you know? The pastor would tell me, you know, don't, don't give this. It took me a while to listen to him. I'm ashamed to say, okay? Of course, he wanted money too, so that's why it was hard for me to listen to him. But after a while, I realized it was right what he was saying. Uh, my most recent, you know, I'm thinking about uh, a year or so back when I was in the Philippines, there was a, a girl, and uh, her husband had died, and, uh, and uh, you know, my heart went off her. She had some kids, and but I asked the conference president who knew this situation, I said, I'm thinking about helping this, uh, um, you know, this family. And uh, when I say I, um, sometimes I'm entrusted with money that, you know, it's not mine, it's other people's. So, um, and he just, he told me a little bit about the situation. And this girl had a hard time uh, with the way she spent money and so on and so forth. She actually rode the cab. I mean, I never, you know, we didn't even ride the cab in the Philippines, you know. And, you know, he said, so, you know, you can help her a little bit. Well, after he gave that description, I didn't help her at all. And uh, um, anyway, the tendency to see solutions in material terms. Yes. Yes. Yeah, many years ago. Wow. They were they were trying very hard to get the people to get up out of that mentality and start working. President Kagami, I think. I don't know if he was a president then, but he, he really believes in that now, the, the more recent president. Okay. Spiritual paternalism, assuming the materially poor are inferior spiritually. This is you know that this is a leap that's a big leap, isn't it? It's a huge leap. But I'm afraid that's kind of in us. And it's kind of in them sometimes. You know, I'm not going to mention any names here, Lori, but, you know, we take certain people, you know, to certain places, and pretty soon they're calling them pastor. You know, well, he's not a pastor, you know. I'm not saying a pastor is up there or anything, but why are they calling him a pastor? Because he's white? Because he's from America? I mean, you know, you know, it just... And so it goes both ways, but it's certainly not true. It's certainly not true. And a uh, reference was made earlier to the VBS and um, partnerships. We're not, you know. Yeah. All right. So, knowledge paternalism. And that is, again, we have all the best ideas about how to do things. As I wrote here, paternalism instead of partnerships. And, uh, oh my goodness. You have these statements. 
And uh, I guess I guess the best thing to do is just to stop. Uh, and uh, we'll kind of finish that up before we go to our next uh, topics tomorrow. Thank you so much for being here. I hope, uh, at the very least, I hope we generated thought today. And uh, tomorrow uh, we're going to talk about aid. And then, uh, and that's uh, going to be, I guess, sort of eye-opening. And then uh, we're going to talk, the next two days we're going to talk about things that have been a blessing around the world, that have really, really worked. Okay. So that's sort of the direction we're going. So let's just say a closing prayer. Father, again, I thank you for each one here who clearly um, wants to be used by you to help those who, in a material way, uh, are in great need of help. Just whatever's been said, interpret it correctly to our minds and hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.